Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Dr. Metha Alhassan is a Syrian-American historian, journalist, social justice artist, and mending practitioner. Her work bridges what often feels like disparate worlds of organizing, academic research, media engagement, artistic expression, and spiritually guided healing practice. In being a witness, I've seen her do this work with incredible grace and rigor and felt called to ask her to share her perspective on love, especially through the frame of self-love. Metha is a woman with huge depth of impact and breadth of study and practice. And I'm grateful she said yes to coming in and speaking with me. What's up, Metha? Oh my God, I'm going to cry, Ethan. That's so beautiful. Thank you. I was thinking when I was writing it, I was like, I want to just speak my truth about what I know of you. And then there's your truth, which is on your website and your bio and your official thing. And it's like, how do I merge those two things? <laughs> I think you did so with... immense beauty um i am repeating the word beautiful (laughs) multiple times Uh, and i actually don't prefer the resume i i love the maybe friend abstract (laughs) as we talk about like academic articles have abstracts but when friends have that witness as you said then that speaks more to who i feel like i am and and orient myself to in the world. Absolutely. Well, and I, I encourage you to learn more about Metha at methalhassan.com, where there's a lot more information and background. Um, but let's jump in. Okay. How do you define love? What is love to you? <laughs> Give me the goods. Uh, of course, you're just asking the easiest question first off. Right. Um, <laughs> I, funny enough, I was compelled to write an article about this for the Huffington Post a couple of years ago because I was reading um, Jido Krishno Murta's uh, work. And then mm-hmm. I um, saw a video by Charles Eisenstein um, about his book, Sacred Economies. And it, it's weird to meld the two because Krishnamurti was coming from a place of thinking about what he said um, as um, consummate selfishness in merging with God, with the source. So basically, Krishnamurti talks about a spiritual kind of love. And then um, Charles Eisenstein, um, he he looks at it from a very collective perspective. He says that love is the expansion of the self to include others. And the, the quote from Krishnamurti that I use in this article is that love is intense will, resolve, and determination for liberation from samsara. And samsara is a uh, is a Buddha. Uh, sorry, I'm like looking at that. Um, samsara is a Hindu concept of uh, cycles of life and death, so rebirth and death. And to break through that, to transcend that, is our merger with God. So Krishnamurti is coming from a spiritual place. Right. Eisenstein is coming from kind of a collectivist, but more so a critique of capitalism in how he's centering love. Mm-hmm. And I was rereading this article and there was a, a part of me in it, but it was amazing to see the growth from years. I, I might've written it maybe six years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm taking a long time to get to this, but basically I've sat with how love emerges from all these fields, from the spiritual, from the political, from the economic, and have been also moved by my own faith tradition. I've been practicing Islam um, since I was born um, Mm -hmm. with various iterations of that. There were moments when I was actually an atheist. 
Uh, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm have to get into that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not afraid to. I think that actually was an essential part of my spiritual journey. So I think about something that's very central to our faith, which is 99 names of God. Okay. And those are names that are called the beautiful names of God. So the most generous, the all-protecting, the all-seeing, um, the uh, all-merciful, the all-gracious. And those things are words that we use to connect back through ritual practice of chanting, through dhikr, to God. And I sat with those words for a while, and I thought about it, and I realized that those were the words not just to connect back to what God is, but what we are supposed to embody in our test with how we practice that with other people, in relationship with other people, and that relationship with other people being all merciful, being all patient, being all generous, starts with how we deal with ourselves. Yep. <laughs> so I, I also think back to this um, revered spiritual teacher for, uh, for Muslims um, named Al-Ghazali, he's 11th century mystic, theologian from Persia. And he says the first step to knowledge of God is knowledge of self. And we know hip hop has reintroduced that in multiple decades. And there's a reason for it, mm -hmm. that this is, this is our template. This is our blueprint for not just theorizing about love, but practicing love. And I think that's the first step towards love. And I'm still trying to figure out the dynamics, the contours of what I mean by that, but I, am really tied to words like freedom and truth as being the anchors in our exploration of love. Yeah, I hear that. Um, and I, I hear what you're saying kind of being a number of different frames. One is the divine and the expression of the divine and then seeing the divine in ourselves and in others, mm. right? And acknowledging we all have that. So those 99 names of God are actually true to us as well. Yes. And so in many ways, there's some kind of, there's some morsels, some crumbs of definition and of love in that because our love of the divine, which we often externalize is actually our bodies as well, right? Yes. We're all creatures of that. Yeah. Um, and then you're you're also speaking a bit to um, the I, I like how you brought in kind of the political and the economic and um, the religious contexts. Eisenstein I know well, and sacred economics is amazing. And it I think what you're doing is actually kind of articulating why I chose to frame this show in those three frames, right? Love of self. There's love in partnership, and then there's love in the collective. And Eisenstein's really interested in love and the collective and how do we actually create an, ec an economy of love, right? And I really wanna speak to guests on the show all about that, economics, politics, you know, activism, which you, know, you can speak to as well, and like journalism, like how do you infuse energetic love into those spaces that are often plagued with a lot of darkness and challenge? Right. So, yeah. I mean, I think that at the heart of anti-racism, anti-capitalist, anti-oppression work, and I don't really like framing things around anti, but mm. at the heart of it is love, is a love that is beyond the ways that consumer culture has narrated it to us in love songs, in rom-coms. And I, you know, I am the consumer of, of rom-coms, but there's always this urge to possess the mm. other. There's an obsession with needing and wanting the other person. And it usually is a reflection of some sort of incompleteness within that something externally can complete you. And the other layer of that is that we think that love is something that we can produce and make in a very capitalist sense and that we can, as I said, own. But in reality, love is is flowing. It's, it's the river that that bends in different ways, the, that if contained, the charge is lost, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would you say that it's a verb? Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I don't know if I necessarily need to confine it to dimensions of grammar. Yeah. And I think that's where I've settled upon it is I have this diagram, and this goes back to the, this frame that 
we're talking about of self, of um, how how I conceive of my own journey with love. Mm. And there's a concept of authentic self-revealing in Sufi traditions. And so for me, authentic self-revealing is pushing the and propelling the movement towards love. Right. So almost as if the enlightenment is moving closer and closer towards, but does that mean that it's never attainable or is it, it, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, this is a good, this is a good question. Again, another practice, uh, spiritual practice that I'm very interested in is African spiritual traditions. And, uh, one in particular is called Ifa talks about in some of the work that I've read, uh, glimpses and flashes of the divine. Okay. So I, in the way that we've narrated enlightenment as this like process towards embodiment and transcendence of attachment to material bodies and values, I don't know if that's a realistic way of talking about this flesh bound experience. I think we have those moments where we feel totally present and charged with what it feels like to integrate mind, body, spirit. And, you know, romantic love is so powerful because we, we feel that, I mean, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna jump to this. We feel that in sex, we feel that in orgasm. Sure. We feel that, um, we feel that in moments where everything stops. And I think that's the intervention and intercession of love. Mm. Okay. So the moments when everything stops. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's that's pretty good one. I like that definition. The moments when everything stops. It just took us 10 minutes to get there. (laughs) Sorry. No, don't be. That's perfect. (laughs) However long it takes. You know, I I almost see that as like flow state. Yeah, totally. So so you are, when I look at you and when I experience you presently, you embody self-love in so many ways. You're, You're an incredibly confident person. You're an incredible speaker. You're very accomplished academically and you do incredible healing work as well. Like you've, you're, you're in it. And I just want, I'd love to hear your story. Like this, there's been a transformation here. You know, when, when I wrote you, you, you used the language ugly duckling, brown girl outcast uh, for what, how you maybe saw yourself at one point. Yeah. Um, and now, and then you moved into looking for external healing, right? Which was kind of externalizing that and then deep diving within. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about your journey. Like yeah, your I know it surprises folks, but I was born and raised in Southern, let me restart. I know it surprises folks to hear me describe myself as an ugly duckling. And at some point that ended up being most of my life um, and mm. I've aged a little bit. So I have more years in this world as somebody who is read as attractive, um, but that was definitely not the case in my formative years. So I was born in a Southern California suburb called West Covina. Shout out to people who watch Crazy (laughs) (laughs) Ex-Girlfriend that that put our city on the map. And um, it is one of those sleepy suburbs that actually was, at the time I was raised, majority Republican, white. Wow. Uh, shifted dramatically throughout my childhood. So I was born when this moment of like multi, alleged multicultural acceptance was part of the language of uh, uh, American culture. So there was the shift around calling Christmas break, um, holiday break. Right. And those, those little <laughs> attempts to see ourselves as not just a melting pot as, as salad bowl or a mosaic or, you know, some of those metaphors. Teaching tolerance. Right. But it didn't really play out that well um, in practice. So one of the first things that happened was that I grew up speaking Arabic as my first language and I learned English through watching television. When I was enrolled in school, they put me in uh, ESL classes. Wow. English as a second language. So basically if parents in public schools fill out that you speak more than one language, they'll put you in ESL classes. And that really damaged my sense of self and my relationship to my culture, because what was happening was that I went to class, um, I'm already, you know, reading, writing, um, 
and they show me a picture of an apple and ask me what that is. And I was, I was like, what is this? I know what an apple is. Like, is this what school is that we I have to go back to these like Sesame Street games? Right. And so I went back home to my parents. And so I must have been like five or six. Had I not pushed back on this, I wonder where I would be. But I went to my dad and I said, I don't understand what the school thing is. It, can we do something to change it? So we, wow. yeah, we went, we went to the administration and the administration said, okay, well, let's take an IQ test <laughs> and see what happens. So I took the IQ test and not only could I qualify for regular classes, but they skipped me a grade and then I went to gifted. Oh, so you were always othered. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And that, that was on the intellectual sense. And I've had to deal with this journey about being more than just my intellect because my intellect is what saved me in that moment and made me feel like I was more than more than right. um as and that that work is still something that I deal with but the same thing the at the same time what was happening was that I was uh this brown girl with mm -hmm. like tight curly hair that maybe didn't fit the beauty and aesthetic standards of the 1980s blonde girls. Um, West Covina, Covina scene. <laughs> <laughs> but not West Covina now, it was so interesting. But right. you, you know, we just have to imagine what was on television in the 1980s, like the yeah. dynasties, the who, all the family sitcoms, the full houses, there was sure. nobody that looked like me. Right. And so that played out um, in the schoolyard. I was bullied constantly, you know, my lunch was stolen, people would try to, take my shoes off as I was walking. And I didn't even think about these things till recently that did it all come together. But very specifically, when I was in middle school, a, a guy that I thought was attractive came up to me once and he asked me out and I was elated. I didn't know that somebody would find me attractive. And I said, yes. And then he turned to his friends who were off in the distance and they all started laughing. And it was oh, like no. a prank on me. Oh gosh. Yeah, so I have those moments of, you are not pretty enough to be in the cool crew and this is, bullying you is actually how some girls got entrance into the cool crew. Right. So I saw how all those dynamics played out up until probably 17. So it was, I mean, to be honest with folks, um, I did have a lot of suicide attempts as a little kid. And wow. I looked into it later on in my life and I didn't realize how rare it is. And clearly it is, should be a rare thing, but it was hard to live in a world where, so my, my parents are from Syria my dad is from Aleppo and my mother is from many places, but lived most of her life in Lebanon. And they came to the States. He came in 1968 um, and my mom came in the late 70s when she married him. And he ended up bringing up most of his family to live on our same block. And I literally grew up in Aleppo. I mean, I woke up in Aleppo and went right. to school in the US. So there was Crazy. this great contrast with who I was supposed to be and always wanting to find some sort of acceptance from the outside. Mm -hmm. That's an, just sidetrack. That's an incredible thing about Los Angeles is historically there are these essentially transplanted cities. Even, right. Yeah. Where you have Korea, you have, yes. you know, uh, Philippines, like all of these, anyway, these pockets. But to get back into what you were saying, first of all, thank you for sharing, you know, the fact that you considered suicide multiple times. And I think, I have, we have a mutual friend, Brittany, who's a teacher and has been sharing some, you know, that that's still present. You know, there's yeah. a lot of students who are really struggling to see love in their daily lives, love in themselves and are considering suicide. And speaking openly about that is really important and um, valuable right now because yes, though it might seem rare, I think it's less rare than we realize. I mean, we have the Anthony Bourdain's, the Kate Spades, we have, right. I mean, Mac Miller was an overdose, but we know right. that that getting to that state has some connection towards. Yeah, there's this sense of, and it comes back to self-love, right? Yeah. So it's really like, to me, 
I'm, I'm, I'm on a healing journey as well. Yeah. And to acknowledge that actually the practice of self-love is a practice to commit to your health. Yeah. It's a practice to commit to your um, self-confidence, right? To, to commit to your joy. And those things are all often lost. And what gets inserted is what you were kind of speaking about, which is more around this idea of love as possession. Love is filling a hole. Love is this kind of, really, it's kind of almost, I, I use the word like colonial in a way, yeah, right? It's yeah. ownership. Yeah. It's, it's power. And when we think about it in that frame, I, 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 I struggle. And yet the way that you define it in kind of this, when everything stops and you're in this flow, it's, it's very much a personal journey. And just hearing your journey is just really, wow. Like, thank you for sharing that. And also, you know, there's a lot that's happened now for you since yeah. high school. Yes, yeah. Um, so it sounds like high school was a challenge and yeah. most of us can agree with that. But yeah, I like that so, was definitely real. Yeah. So then what happened? Yeah. So um, it was really interesting too. I think what compounded this was that I came from a family of having five siblings and my sister is the fifth child. I'm the second child and she's 10 years younger than me. So wow. there were shifting demographics, uh, ethnically, racially, religiously through the K through 12 experience that I had for her. And she was born like, out the gate as being this beautiful child that everybody stopped and gave flowers to. What? <laughs> she had this Shirley Temple mound of curls that people would look, you know, stop, take pictures, look at her. It, we were diametric opposites. She was homecoming queen. She was student body wow. president. Little boys would spend their like field trip money buying her rings. And so it was, it was interesting because I started to narrate who we were as being like me, the smart one, her, the the beautiful one. But it's 10 years. 10 years So difference. is it also possible that in the passage of 10 years, the definition of beauty yes. had yes. evolved? Yeah, and that's what I'm also navigating to, or that's what I'm also gesturing towards, which is that I looked at the, the homecoming court for my year and it was all white women and for her. Right. And for her, it was, mostly women of color and things, the demographic shifted, maybe beauty standards and definitions shifted, you know, a JLo entered into the sphere of, of beauty ideals, you (laughs) (laughs) You know, so many others. Um, But I also entered a, a college environment that was very diverse. And I know that we constantly have debates about, um, affirmative action, sorry, about affirmative action, um, about how, how much diversifying the college campus experience actually enhances the educational journey. Mm. And I 100% believe that to my core because that shifted everything for me. Now I had friends who had similar experiences coming from monocultural high school processes. Um, and I, I was in an environment where I was learning things politically, economically, I was learning about myself. Like I said, I entered college, I was reading the, um, the uh, existentialists, I was becoming atheist, mm-hmm. I was revisiting my own concept of what it meant to have a, di- a divine being. And you know, maybe we can get into this sort of journey around atheism, which I realized I was taught my faith in a very mechanical way. And I think a lot of people in many faith traditions have that similar experience. So we see this God as this white man with a beard billow in these billowy clouds. Mm -hmm. And that didn't resonate with me. So critiques of that did. And I was in that space and journey for a while. And then really synchronistic spiritual things started to happen when I ended up moving to New York for graduate school. And I was forced to confront the fact that, oh, actually, I did. I did believe in, you know, Nietzsche says that we uh, God is dead and we have God's blood in our hands. And I did believe that because I needed to kill that idea of a God outside of myself. Mm in order to really embody that divine relationship and that desire to have that divine relationship that is all encompassing and all within. Yeah. 
I really would just want to double click on something. Yes. <laughs> um, because you mentioned going, getting out of the West Covina yeah, bubble yeah. and getting into university yeah. and how that almost changed your whole framing of how you could see yourself. Because all of a sudden you're surrounded by different people. Yes. By people who looked maybe like you or yes. people who didn't look at all like you, but they also didn't look like the people from West Covina. Yeah. And I just want to, like, I, I think we always have this, uh, assumption and we're starting to see a lot of people say secondary education really maybe not necessary you know the values of going to a university uh, it's so expensive versus the cost right and I think that's a really fascinating argument is like getting out of the bubble that you grew up in and into an environment where hey you're probably going to be living in a different scenario with different people and if you're not at least you're gonna be taking classes with people who might look very different from where you came from and really being challenged to get out of that comfort zone. And the same thing can be said with people who travel oftentimes. I mean, it's easy to travel and stay in a bubble, right. but there are folks who have that coming of age and that, that kind of awareness that happens when you experience other cultures and other places and you leave where you're from. Right. And the political education that you get on a college campus, especially one that is very politicized, is invaluable. And yeah. in the particular moment I was at UCLA, the concept of intersectionality, maybe we didn't use that term, was part of our practice of the way that we organized each other. Right. I mean, this is during the Iraq war, conversations about whether or not we were gonna jump in and 9-11 happened, was it my freshman or sophomore year? So it was a very charged environment, but we were making connections. So as the national debates revolved around whether or not Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and whether or not that meant that we needed to invade a sovereign country, right. um, we were looking at the enrollment numbers of black students dramatically dropping after the overturn of affirmative action, which you know, one year it was 300, went down to 187, then the following year went down to 90 incoming class of thousands of students. And there was a speaker there who um, is Iraqi and got very involved in um, Chicano student organizing on campus. And he said something that I'll always remember, that what happens to those students who don't get in here and as we're going to war, they're the first ones that are going to be recruited yeah. into war. So I was already introduced to thinking that was making those connections mm -hmm. at an early age. And that's not what my high school education looked like either. And funny enough, you brought that up. I tried so much. Again, I just touched upon how hard K through 12 was for me. I tried in every sort of way to get out of it. Like I, the first thing I did when I went on the internet was look for boarding schools. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, tried to get my mom, I set up a meeting for her to uh, send me to a, a private school in Los Angeles to get outside of the West Covina bubble. But one of the other things I did was I noticed there was somebody that I grew up with. She um, took uh, community college courses for what would be freshman and sophomore year of high school and augmented them with homeschooling. And so she reduced the amount of time for high school and then went to college, what would have been her junior and senior year of high school. Wow. So I was trying to design a plan like that. Right, I right. took like the GED at 16. I was like, mom, okay, now I can go to community college and then do the same thing that Amy did. Mm -hmm. and, there, and then my dad was on this, rant about how I'll never be employed if I don't have a high school diploma. And so I, uh, I was like, I was like, dad, if I have a college degree, that's not going to be a thing. But you know, all that to say that there, there was something that I knew that spiritually that I was going to get from the college experience. And I did in a political way, um, education around ec economics and economic justice. I was introduced to Malcolm X and you know, I'm a yeah. very deeply in love, use right. the term of the hour, um, with Malcolm. And the social capital is something that a lot of folks who are not within a network of people who are networked right. get from the college experience. So huge. Yeah, I've, I've realized that was the biggest lesson I got was, oh, I know people that together, we can work together in collective and do things, or they have relationships that can maybe get me a job or, you know, get me into the next schooling of my life. And, and, and yeah, that relationship building exercise was so key that I learned in college so I can relate. 
So it sounds like when you were in school uh, at UCLA, you really started to get involved across cultures, um, kind of questioned religion maybe at that point, yeah. but you were looking at other cultural groups and um, seeing how that oriented around politics and, and what was happening around the war and also affirmative action, as you said. Um, and you are very involved in the movement for black lives. I'm curious as to, as an activist and as someone who has been in that space for so long and organizing, um, how the kind of self-love plays a role. Because I've, you know, I've heard you and Anne Patrice Kalor speak about this, um, the, the, necess the necessity of loving oneself so that you can show up fully in action. Yeah, yeah. Patrice has this beautiful um, saying now that you can buy on a T-shirt. I I love the I love us way more than, and I'm paraphrasing. I love us way more than they can possibly hate us. Yes. And wow. and that's an expression of the love coming from within and towards, which is the love of self to be able to cultivate that kind of love to offer and emit to other people to the collective. And love is activism. It is. It, you have to have a really strong idealism. Well, I don't want to say idealism. You have to be compelled by the forces that, see, that help you see a different world. Right. And I think love does that. And I, a, a, a kind of rooting in love that isn't idealistic. That's why I was trying to distance myself from that term. But recalls those moments when time stops and how we can offer it to other folks and the moments that we feel it for ourselves. What would it look like for everybody else to not feel trapped, to not feel possessed, to not feel hopeless around how to design a life outside of racism and capitalism and uh, sexism and transphobia and ableism? What does it mean to feel free? And I think that's the, the other thing that where my activism has really navigated towards which is how can i help people feel free in their bodies mm. because that's what i've been feeling in my spiritual practices and has been a marker for how much i've evolved in the yoga that i do and the yoga that i offer in the chanting the sufi islamic chanting that i do the meditation that i engage in the the own constructed rituals by the beach that i regularly try to practice how can i bring that to folks and at the end of the day, that is organizing, that is activism, is moving towards that freedom within. I, thank you for saying that. I just want to press pause and just say, you're listening to Love Extremist Radio. I'm Ethan Lipsitz. I have Dr. Metha Al-Hassan with me. We are talking about love in self-love and also just touching now on how cultivating self-love is both an, an act of activism and also tied directly to being a effective, effective kind of participant in the conversation, in organizing, in showing up and being embodied and being in that space. And earlier on, you're saying the definition, can we got to this definition of love when everything stops? And what I love about that is when everything stops, that means your mind's not racing, you're not making judgments. You're out of this kind of separation myth yeah. where we're all different and we're all power playing and trying to, you know, stack up on each other and lead something. But rather, we're just here. Well, this we're is in ourselves. Yeah, but this is exactly why racism is the deepest spiritual crisis because mm. of the way that it makes people separate. Yes. From each other and has then in effect made you separate from yourself and separate from the divine. So I always wonder why we don't really infuse racism in wellness conversations. Seems like those worlds are so separate, but they are so linked. This is the work. <laughs> yeah. You, what you were talking about, and this is why, like, this is why we're having this conversation. And I knew, like, I'm so glad you were my first guest because that right there, being the bridge between looking at racism and looking at wellness and saying, oh, actually, this is the same thing. Loving oneself means loving your body, means loving how you show up, means being confident about that. More, and, and it's not even in opposition to anything. It's simply just be a, a radiance right. so that others 
just shine back, right? We're all mirrors for each other. Right, right, right. And that, that impulse to compare right. is the logic of racism. Right. And if you are comparing yourself to the other instead of the other version of you that you're evolving from, then you're going to constantly be in the illusion that racism creates with the material violence that ends up being the result of that illusion. And so we can break free of that, but we're so afraid to touch racism because we think that if we admit up to it, you know, you were talking about the work that I do with uh, Movement for Black Lives, that all started with internal work I had to do with the anti-blackness that is either within me, indoctrinated through our culture or internalized through, you know, American culture or, uh, you know, Arab anti-blackness. I had to deal with that. And, you know, most of my work is the black Arab solidarity hmm. stuff and i had to go to a really honest place with that but that is how i am on this wellness journey right wow i i yeah and i just when when bridges become illuminated mm. um as humans right we we act as bridges but when when we kind of illuminate this these pathways where we realize that these things are all connected we so often associate wellness with wealthy, uh, often white communities, right? And um, I, you know, I introduced you to my friend Michelle, who's doing incredible work and yeah. in working to kind of change that paradigm. But it's you know a lot of the work that you do. So you've come to this place of really practicing with within yourself, but also offering those gifts to others. Um, can you speak a little bit about? kind of how you help people get into their bodies and, and into their self-love? Yeah, I, as you might have gleaned from this conversation, I believe our deepest politics are what we put into our bodies in every way. What is around us? What are we consuming? What are we listening to? Who are we around? What structures and forces are we consuming? Mm. And so the, the work that I have been doing, I've been trained as a trauma-informed or healing-centered yoga instructor also as a meditation teacher and one that is very attuned to the somatic experience in the body. So how emotions are locked into a, our bodies, but also through my, my own spiritual work, I've added that layer of the unseen mm. um, to getting people to see within themselves. Wow. Um, but very specifically, I've been working with displaced people, with refugees uh, in Greece to teach these yoga practices and impart them. Um, and last October, which is October 2017, I went to the island of Kios and worked at this women's center and offered it. It was almost like a trauma center, even though it was supposed to be just for activities for women. But I was forced into, uh, I don't want to say forced, but I was you know, really the only Arabic speaker who can translate into English. So I was put into translating for psych appointments, um, for medical appointments. And I was not prepared to do that because I wanted to just go and offer the yoga practice, but it was called in that moment. And um, I actually took a long time to heal from that, not just what I was witnessing with the women in the center and holding space for them in the yoga practice, which was beautiful. You know, I saw a teenage girl from Iraq who went every single day and by the end in one of the Shavasana position, in the Shavasana position, which is the corpse position. I saw her breathing with a smile on her face and that meant everything to me, but I was also not taking care of myself and I was allowing myself to be thrown into situations that um, I didn't cultivate a container of care for myself. So mm -hmm. in psych appointments, you hear stories that even Hollywood could not write of what these women have survived and lived through in the migration experience and the experience of escaping war, gender-based violence in keeping their family together. And the research around secondary trauma, which is witnessing somebody going through trauma is really fascinating because some say that it could even be more intense being a witness um, to trauma. And so I didn't know any of those things. I just got sent in and I realized that I was carrying a lot because it manifested in my body. I had an inflamed gut for months. Wow. Yeah. And I started to do a lot more research around this and speak publicly about it and really ended up confronting uh, some of my superficiality because I was 
very, very stressed out about this. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm already carrying stress in them, stressed out about this, about the way I look and how different this feels in my body. But I realized that this was the body's miraculous way of, of sending a page to you, of yeah. saying, you know what, I'm calling. You need to pay attention to how you're taking care of yourself and in this work, which is what a lot of people don't do. And I think this is why we're talking about the frame of self-love is you can't do this healing work without one being on this journey of healing yourself, which I call a conversation and not a cure, but also to carve out that space and time for that healing to actually emerge, for it to um, have wiggle room. Yeah. It's so easy for us to study and to learn how to offer a gift like yoga and especially for people who've gone through trauma, right? And to help with healing and then to show up and say, okay, I'm ready to give and not realize that to be an effective practitioner, you actually need to be able to build that self-loving practice of clearing, right? Yeah. And releasing whatever's come up. And I think the same can be said for anyone who lives in an environment of trauma, right? So, you know, whether you're young or old and living in certain communities that are often, you know, ravaged by challenge, could be a war-torn area, it could be a ghetto of America, it could be, you know, out in the countryside where there's, you know, a lot of issues right now with opiate addiction and other things going on. I mean, like there's so many different areas where traumas are occurring in our world. And just to be able to acknowledge, to be a sensitive person and to offer your gifts, and then also to be able to heal and take space and know how to support yourself. So are, do you have practices that you do yeah. to now? That, yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you for asking <laughs> that. I've had to establish those boundaries and really tap into how energetically fluid I am, how porous. Yeah. My energy fields are and you know one thing really is consistent practice around for me yoga and meditation so I can dive deeper into that self-awareness of where I'm feeling way too open where there might be some closures and blockages for that dynamic life force energy that is within um, and so one of the things that I ended up doing is uh, working with a healer. I went to Costa Rica afterwards and I said, you know what, I just need to be gone for uh, some period of time. So I worked with a healer for one week and then I went to Santa Teresa and just literally was in the water and in the sun yeah. for, a, for a full week. And the ocean water is very healing mm -hmm. for me. Um, just being submerged and feeling carried by Mother Earth's saltiness just feels like it's cleansing and washing away the toxins that I might have built up. But what was the funny thing that happened during that period was that I had work to do, so I brought my laptop. Hmm. My laptop would not open. <laughs> it literally was a blank screen. I was stressing out, I was contacting my brother who is an IT guru, and he was, go he was going me, he was going through some troubleshooting with me. And then um, I was like, you know what? Maybe this is a sign yep. that I just need to be present to this healing process. So I didn't open up my laptop until I thought I needed to go to the Genius Bar. And it turned out that I just opened it and it it worked again. Wow. <laughs> so I really desperately needed that time to unplug. And thankfully, with much gratitude, I was given it. Uh, the healer that I worked with gave me energy maintenance practices that I do in the morning so that I can protect my energy from the flow of energy that I'm receiving from other people. So there was this awareness that I am, and I hate using this term because it's so overused, but I am an empathic person mm -hmm. and I think it's overused and sometimes valorized. I don't think empathy is a, I don't want to put it in normative terms like a good or bad thing, but I don't think empathy is as valuable as we see it. Mm. Compassion is what we should strive towards. Empathy is, is just feeling. It's like feeling the pain of the other. It's feeling the joy of the other, but it can also be a very selfish expression that look, you're, Ethan, your pain is, is hurting me. Like right. I can't, it's all about me now. Like the fact that I am absorbing your pain. Even Octavia Butler writes about empathy as a disease, not wow. as any sort of, beneficial uh, superpower. But compassion is the way that we can give that love 
that we've cultivated from within to the person and not be bound to this um, co this contract that we didn't consent to of feeling what other, anybody else is going through. And it's this kind of martyrdom and self-sacrifice that is not good for you, it's not good for the other person, but somehow makes us feel valuable because right. we can feel. Mm. But that being said, I've learned energy practices that emphasize the compassion element. So basically being a, a funnel for source energy to come through me. It's not about me. It's about the love and joy coming from the other realms that will come through me to you. And so my work, and this is going back to love uh, of self, but really, I don't think I answered this question of how you cultivate this love. It's doing everything you can to be the purest channel for source energy to flow through you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the work at the end of the day of embodying love is for love to come through, not for you to contain it. Yep, right. And so, so some of the ways that I do this to give people practical skill sets is just envisioning this little hole for as much as you need or uh, opening. Holes have sometimes a weird connotation. <laughs> yeah. Orifice, right? Yeah, an orifice. <laughs> uh, well, opening. Yeah. Let's go back to opening. Um, so an opening for however wide you need it to be in terms of what you're sensing the other person needs for you to visualize source or the divine to come through you to that person. And also to remind yourself as this is happening with some sort of mantra, this is not my energy, this is an energy that's coming through me. If I'm absorbing other people's energy, return it to them in the most loving way. Mm -hmm. And it seems like for folks who are not in this culture, in this world, a little bit of hocus pocus, but you sit with, with these words, I truly believe words become your world. Yeah, absolutely. And you tell yourself you love yourself every morning and at the end of a month, you're on cloud nine, you know, yeah. I think these affirmations and, and whatever, whatever words you need to use to protect and support yeah. yourself. And I take, I take a lot of time out. I know people see me as this Aquarian social butterfly, but I tell folks, and I'm sure they're shocked that I spend 80% of my day by myself. Wow. And I think that if more people very specifically, or if more people sat with themselves around how they're spending their time, which is also an expression of love because it's the kind of quality of time that you can give somebody, mm -hmm. then I think that we would also have more loving relationships because some people are overextended and they're still sitting with people and they're absorbing their energy and they don't have anything to give and they're giving from a place of lack. Right. I do want to just touch quickly on the value or what you perceive the value to be of the shadow of darkness, oh, yeah. right? Because there is, there are these lessons that are learned, right? From engaging with whether it's our own shadow or that of another and working through that and, and in compassion com, you know, at the root of compassion is still the share. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, curious to hear. Yeah, you... our shadows are our lessons. Our mm. shadows give us the tools to understand why we're flesh bound. I mean, we could have been born in this world of spirits, but we're not. Right. We're born with a soul that has ego attached to it. So it's a completely different experience that I believe we opted in to trying to explore. And within that, we are learning how to rise back um, to and through the spirit world. But you, you know, within my tradition, um, there's a term called jihad, and I know it's a scary word for people, but mm. it's been misused and abused. And it basically means that the, the struggle of this journey is a struggle within, and it's a struggle between the spirit and the ego. Mm -hmm. And you actually are not supposed to annihilate the ego. That's not really the goal. I mean. There are different philosophical approaches, but my interpretation is that within the jihad, the ego is sublimated. That energy is there. It exists to charge the spirits. Mm -hmm. And so that is the work. The work is to say, um, to be really honest <laughs> about those shadows. You know, like we were talking about dealing with the internal anti-blackness and also dealing with the self-hate that I had for being an ugly duckling and 
again, the, the longer struggle I have now um, around being the intellectual, the know-it-all, the corrector. My sister said this to me once when we were traveling around. She's like, you like to correct people a lot. And then I had to sit with that. Right. But wow, because that, I still find value in me being the smartest person in the room. Right. And that that is full-blown ego. <laughs> and what, yeah. what that living an ego um, does is it awakens us to the another truth and so if you if you take that invitation if you disengage and ignore ego then you'll never be led to the waters of truth and that's you know it's it's funny that i say that because the the word sharia which people think just means like legal code means the way to the water Mm, wow yeah that's dope i also am getting this vision of a light switch like the ego almost feels like a switch that empowers our boundaries so in a practice of self-love the ego is the thing that needs to be turned on so that every day you can wake up and say i love myself right Right. or i yeah maybe i am the smartest person in the room (laughs) and i love that about myself right now or you know just whatever it is that engages you there's there's real value there and i think you're absolutely right there is this kind of framework of kill the ego you know get out of that and and in reality, there's there's always the, that value that we have, and it's kind of like the same yin yang right. balance of the shadow and the light, yeah, right? A lot of just pulling this out into the framework of media. You, you are also a journalist. Um, I see. I've unsubscribed to a lot of media because what you were saying about consumption, right? Yeah, me when too. When you consume negative, toxic content food, whatever it is in your body that affects your health. And so to me, it's a self-loving practice to actually unsubscribe. Yes. And the effort of this practice that we're doing right now and talking about love is to infuse ripples of that energy and that spirit into the world through this radio program. Right, right. Um, I'm curious as to where that you might see that happening in your sphere, in yeah. journalism, in, in, in organizing, in academia. Where are you seeing like, oh, there's heart here, there's love here, and it's actually rippling out? Yeah, it's honestly a real struggle for me. I, as I'm evolving in this journey, and I know that a lot of my work has revolved around politics and organizing towards policy changes, and then having that part of me that is living in other realms of freedom. Yeah. I don't I don't know why I engage in that world, but I think I've settled upon this, Ethan, which is that I am attracted to journalism and I've always had this really bizarre relationship to it that I would come on as a guest and then be invited to be a guest host later. Okay. And so I I knew that there was some sort of leading divine guidance around, okay, this is a sign that you have to be in this world. So Actually, academically, I really studied the idea of witness. And at the end of the day, that's what a journalist does is bearing witness Mm -hmm. to what is going on around them, what's going on in the globe, um, what is emerging and unfolding. And witness has many levels to it. You can just witness and absorb, like we were talking about the spiritual sense of it and how it affects the body. And I know a lot of war correspondents that are chronic chain smokers that look like they've aged 20 years and they haven't cultivated a practice to contain that because they've just held in the witness and have written about it for articles. But um, I came up with this concept called engaged witness, which I think my own kind of journalism work is motivated by. And that's the idea that we, we witness an injustice, but we are also bound to testify. That's how we get it to work through us. And so, again, I draw so much from Islamic traditions, but the first act of faith, they say, is profession, and the term is shahada, which means to bear witness. But in Arabic, it also means to give testimony. So poetically, it's called to tell what the eye beholds. Yeah, and then another step further, the third meaning that could mean is the person who bears witness is a martyr to the divine. So basically my definition of engaged witness is to witness an injustice and die seeing the injustice, but to only be reborn in the telling. And that's where justice is balanced. 
That's where justice is achieved in, in that compelling to tell and to tell everybody around you. Like we were going, you know, like we were talking about the beginning of this conversation when I was really in college learning about anti-blackness through my own organizing efforts, uh, through my study of Malcolm X, through my friendships with um, my black friends that born and raised in Los Angeles, only then did I really feel compelled to do the inner work so that I could be somebody who would speak what I saw. Uh, I know the term we use is allyship, um, be the comrade, be the friend. But it was all coming from a, a place in politics of engaged witness. And at the end of the day, that's the way that I can see my journalism operating because other than that, it is just entertainment shouting on top of each other, no real drive to come to a place of meeting right. around how people are misunderstood um, or how certain political ideologies are actually calling for the death and harm of people. And that's not an act of love right. at all. Right. Yeah, that's such a complex. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was just, I was, I, I was just swirling around, and I don't know. I was, I was thinking about like the way that fear mongering um, also inspires people to act from a place of survival, which is, you know, the lowest uh, root chakra of existence. Right. Like you have to have that. You have to have that base, but you can't operate from a place of love if you're only creating a politics around survival and preservation. Mm -hmm. So I was just flashing back to people shouting over each other on CNN <laughs> and, and, and how far away from love those places are. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think that has to be the case. No. And yeah. so I just want to thank you for your work and, and really speaking up in contrast and providing it the yin to the yang of that, of that framing. Um, so if, you're just joining us. We're wrapping up a conversation with Dr. Metha Al-Hassan, who is an incredible scholar and organizer and teacher and someone who is, uh, I'm proud to say, a friend of mine, um, speaking on self-love and the cultivation of self-love. And so I, I guess I, I, I ask, um, before you share your favorite love song with us, I'd love to just hear if you have any kind of closing words around self-love for the audience to kind of ponder um, you know, I, I, th this is Love Extremist Radio, you know, anything that feels in alignment with uh, your, your practice that you'd like to share for others to maybe take home and, and engage. Yeah, I've referenced, a I've referenced a lot about Islam and touched upon yoga, but yoga is definitely a place where things have been made, spiritual has been made very material for me. So you know, in yoga, we talk about a difference between discomfort and pain. Mm. And I just encourage folks, especially when we talk about racism or capitalism, where it can inspire a discomfort of, about, well, if we balance things out, what's going to happen to me? To go there, to go in that place, because it's actually not as painful. It's uncomfortable. That's what it is. And when we do these practices within our body, we are given the confidence to understand that we can work through those uncomfortable places, that they shouldn't be as scary as we fear them to be. So take that integrate mind, body, spirit. And I don't just mean on that individual level, but the three frames you, sp you spoke of requires that out of you. Mm, thank you. It reminds me of a song. Sometimes I gather people to sing songs together and there's this song I wrote that it's kind of like a mantra vibe. It goes, can I get comfortable? <laughs> In the uncomfortable, can I be all okay every day? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like this like fun chant, but it's so real, right? And, and, and as I heal my body, I notice like, oh, wow, like just doing these exercises, like exercise often is uncomfortable and yeah. it's not that dope. But yeah. <laughs> if you can actually sit in plank for the two minutes that it's, or not sit, but be in plank for the two minutes it takes, like your body starts to shake, you start to kind of tense up and yet to practice that with and, and get through it, there's this incredible feeling of accomplishment and yeah, I mean, and a realization that there's rewards on the other side. 
And it's almost like confronting your fears, right? right. You know, the you ego. Realize- yeah, yeah. You have to be in conversation with the shadow and the ego for you to get beyond it. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. So what's your favorite love song? Okay. I always say that I have no desire to have a wedding, but if I had the wedding song it would be as by my dear heart stevie wonder Ooh, stevie oh, all right song. sweet we'll drop that on the outro here and uh i want to thank you uh you can learn more you have a uh, social handles what's the best way for us to stay abreast of what you're up to i'm obsessed with instagram these days so <laughs> okay. i will uh, let me let me backtrack i my favorite social media site is instagram so at May, M-A-Y, Alhassen, A-L-H-A-S-S-E-N. And my website, www.mayalhassen.com, has all the info. And pretty soon I'm going to be launching my own network blog of services and my work called Sawaha, which is basically a wanderer that that seeks freedom from within. Amazing. Yeah. We'll be looking out for that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me on Extremist Love Radio. And uh, being my first guest. Oh my God, this was such a joy. Yeah, this is dope. I feel like, I really feel like I was nervous about having this show and it it feels like we're we're on something that's important. So these conversations really resonate and hearing your story and getting to know you in this way is really fun. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah, and I want to thank the team at Dream and Dash Radio and everyone that's helped put this together. Cole here, rocking the production slot. Uh, and uh, and Blaze, thank you all for, for having me out. Kindness knows no shame, nothing for your joy and pain.